you know, it's been discussed, you know, at multiple high-level forums. So I'll tell you, this NASA report will not be making any friends with ESA, JAXA, Space Force, AFRL, or U.S. companies. I mean, really, the, the signal that said is U.S. companies go overseas. Don't expect any help from NASA. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hey there, Downlink listeners. This week, NASA finally released its space-based solar power report. It's nearly 16 months late, and we can't ignore the fact that in those months, China, Britain, Japan, and the European Space Agency, which is often called ESA, they haven't waited around for the United States. Instead, they've been making strides in developing space-based solar power technology, the policy, the commercial partnerships, real industrial plans with real capital and human effort put to them, all of this activity without the United States. And this NASA report, in its current draft, and I say that because rumors are it's been rewritten since first being finished in 2022, this report, according to our guests, is a cautionary exhibit depicting how a storied national space agency and a leading space power voluntarily surrenders its leadership position. If you have the inclination, read the NASA document. It's simply titled Space-Based Solar Power. And if you do that, you will find before the appendices 33 pages of tortured text And that's the tip-off, that what awaits readers like experts, policymakers, legislators, and their coteries of advisors on the Hill, the ones who hold the budgetary pen, it should be clear to them that this report is somewhat off-kilter, somewhat attenuated. And you don't have to be a space nerd to get it. In fact, if you've listened to, well, let's just say the last three months of this podcast technology episodes, what is missing is what NASA knows is technologically possible now and what space-based solar power would cost in today's dollars. This is an important report that could have far-reaching and strategic ramifications to the economy, to industry, and to national defense on Earth as well as in the space domain. To explain the technology and what this report means, we have Peter Gerritsen, John Mankins, and Ed Tate. If after listening to this episode, you want to dive even deeper, look for the three episodes on space-based solar power in August and September of 2022. Now, here's our conversation. Hello, John, Peter, and Ed. Thank you guys so much for making the time on such short notice to join me today on the Downlink Podcast. Thank you, Laura, for having us. Hey, it's great to be here. Now, before we get to the news, and that's NASA's Space-Based Solar Power Report, let's take a moment to have you guys introduce yourselves. And Peter, as you are the regular here, why don't you start? Well, thank you, Laura. I'm Peter Gerritsen. I'm a senior fellow in defense studies at the American Foreign Policy Council, where I'm co-director of our Space Policy Initiative. And I've written a couple of books, both of which deal in part with space solar power, Scramble for the Skies, the Great Power Competition to Control the Resources of Outer Space, and the Next Space Race, a Blueprint for American Primacy. 
And also, I was the lead author of the 2008 Pentagon study on space solar power that recommended we should have a national program quite a while ago. And Ed, you're next. Uh, thanks, Laura. I am Dr. Ed Tate. I am the CTO at Virtus Solus. Uh, we are a commercial company that's working on commercialization of space-based solar. We've got a plan to make it happen within this decade. I come from a background of high-volume manufacturing, spent 20 years in automotive working on electrification, high-volume manufacturing and design. I've got 10 years of scientific software and design uh, automation that was done after that. And for the past four years, I've been working on space-based solar. Past two years have been full-time. And in that time, we've built prototypes of wireless power transfer systems and done public demonstrations at 100-meter mark showing that wireless power actually works. And this is one of the key technologies underneath space-based solar. Um, we've done a lot of analyses that are actually related to what we're going to talk about today. So if anybody's interested... Uh, I'm a very prolific LinkedIn poster, and we also repost over on our website. Awesome. And hey, Ed, when did you and uh, John Bucknell actually found your company? It was founded four years ago, so it was founded in uh, 2019. But it took uh, two years for us to go through and do the initial analyses to say, yeah, this actually works, and complete that engineering and then put together a business plan and get our first investors. So November of 2021, we were officially full-time, we were a funded startup, and two months after that, we had our first wireless power demo working. Awesome. And now, last but certainly not least, is you, John. And I don't even know where to start because the only one who predates you on space-based solar power is the science fiction author Isaac Asimov. Now, your nonfiction book, the Case for Space Solar Power. It was published 10 years ago this month. So first, congratulations on this anniversary. Thank you, Laura. And with that, take a moment and introduce yourself. So uh, as Laura said, my name is John Mankins. I was with NASA for 25 years, 10 years at JPL, 15 years at NASA headquarters, uh, I worked in flight projects and spacecraft systems engineering in advanced studies, uh, but I spent most of my time in managing uh, advanced technology research and development at NASA. I uh, used to run a billion-dollar portfolio, uh, billion-dollar-year portfolio, that is to say. Uh, I was the chief technologist for human spaceflight for a while. Uh, if anybody who listens to the podcast is familiar with technology readiness levels, the TRALs, as they're called. I wrote the definitions for the technology readiness levels uh, back in the 90s. Uh, and I did uh, and, and led a whole series of advanced concept studies while I was at NASA, uh, most famous of which uh, had to do with space solar power uh, and uh, led eventually after I had left NASA to my coming up with a new architectural approach for space solar power involving very high levels of modularity and mass production, which I know we'll talk about later, mass production of the spacecraft systems as an approach to driving down space mission costs drastically. And, and I'm sure we'll talk more about all of that. But I want to do a shout out to two people who were uh, real giants in the field, um, Peter Glazer, who invented the solar power satellite as a system design back in the 60s, and Bill Brown of Raytheon, 
who uh, did the first practical technology demonstration of wireless power transmission. Both of them great gentlemen, great visionaries, now gone, uh, but uh, but uh, necessary when everyone's speaking of the subject to remember them. So thank you. And now, John, I want to start this opening segment with you because the downlinks audience has you know grown, and there are probably a number of folks out there that don't know that one of the two concepts the authors of this report used in their comparative study was your solar power satellite Alpha Mark III or SPS Alpha Mark III. Just to create our own kind of baseline, could you briefly explain how the SPS Alpha Mark III would work, how much it would cost, and how quickly we could get it into operation? John? So a solar power satellite is uh, the concept, space solar power. It's the concept of putting a large satellite in space, which will intercept sunlight where the sun shines almost all the time, and send that energy converted into usually low-intensity microwaves to markets on the Earth 24-7, 365. And uh, that way, space solar power can complement and augment terrestrial solar power, uh, which, of course, only provides energy, but at really low cost when the sun is shining or with the associated energy storage systems. My particular concept SPS Alpha, it's a solar power satellite by means of arbitrarily large scaled, sorry, arbitrarily large phased array, is a highly scalable, highly modular system in which you go from uh, one or 10 or a thousand pieces that make up a, a system like the International Space Station to a, uh, an architecture which is like a living organism, like a beehive or a colony of ants in which you literally have hundreds of thousands to millions of modules that take the incoming sunlight, convert it into electricity, convert it again into uh, radio, and then send it by low-intensity microwaves to the Earth. Uh, SPS Alpha is, is unusual, uh, or at least when it was first uh, uh, proposed some dozen years ago, uh, in that it is very highly scalable. You can build an SPS Alpha at a few hundred kilowatts and it would, would work fine with a given set of modules. And you can take it all the way up to thousands of kilowatts, to megawatts and gigawatts of power with the same kinds of basic modules. You just make more of them and plug more of them together. So that's the, the basic idea. Thank you so much for that. And because I think it is very important for this audience, which is really defense-oriented, Peter, you are a retired Air Force colonel and a proponent of space-based solar power. I want you to take a moment to clearly draw the lines between this technology and why it is so important to national security and international stability. Peter? Sure. So... Let's start with the second part of your question, international stability. If we assume that at some point in time, some nation is going to be successful in building solar power satellites, you want that nation to be a trustworthy nation, not the kind of nation that's going to just turn off, your, uh, turn off the keys to it, like the pipeline uh, going into Europe, because there's some issue. And so, the pipeline from Russia, think, to, be, to be exact, right? That's right, the pipeline from Russia. So, you know, I think, you know, that it, 
in a world where you want sort of stability, you'd really like to have technology like this in the hands of someone, in the hands of a power that's interested in a rules-based order, that's interested in open commerce, um, and that's interested in, in maintaining a predictable rule set and isn't an anti-status quo power. In terms of like the ramifications of the technology itself, I'll just point out that, you know, these systems that we're talking about are very, very large. Um, you know, the International Space Station today produces a little over 100 kilowatts, uh, and it's about 400 metric tons. And, you know, we're talking about systems that once deployed, you know, are, are close to 8,000 metric tons uh, and produce gigawatts of power. And you have to realize that a nation that has an industrial base that can produce a two gigawatt system in orbit, 8,000 uh, metric tons, has an amazing uh, space mobility and logistics system, has an amazing launch system and cadence and ability to go to space, and has access to tremendous amounts of power in space, as well as fleets that can go anywhere they need to go, also, you know, with high power. So, you know, to put it bluntly, a nation that can build a solar power satellite, their space force can crush a nation that doesn't have that kind of capability. Thank you so much for illustrating that. So now let's jump into the report. All three of you were either named in this report personally or your company was. So I think it's pretty appropriate to get your take on its findings, especially from your particular perspectives. And for that, I'd like for you, Ed, to start off this segment of the discussion by answering, what does this report actually say to you and Vertisolis? What is NASA, and obviously by extension, the White House communicating? So when you look at the report... There are two different things that the report focused on, which was the impact that space-based solar could have on net zero and CO2 uh, reduction. The other was on what would impact it would have on the cost of electricity. And they, they took a viewpoint of looking at it from two bookends. The, the first bookend is we do business as usual. We do things the way we're doing them now and put something in orbit. And they validate, yeah, this can be done. The technical objections, you know, there's really nothing that can't be built. But it's only going to be competitive in very select markets if we do business as usual. Now, they did say if we take and we actually innovate, we do the things that need to be done to improve hardware durability, to improve launch costs, to improve uh, the light weightening of the designs, then some very amazing things happen and the price of this comes down. And in fact, even within this report, they validate that the price can be competitive with the cheapest electricity in terms of both cost and in terms of uh, uh, CO2 abatement. So that's great, that is fantastic. Um, the challenges that are in there is that the, the path that you're going to take to, to get from one end to the other of the bookends, the other is that they also acknowledge that even in the analysis they did, they only looked at two architectures. So there's a whole universe of solutions that are out there right now, many of which you know can drive costs much, much lower. And we've got our particular approach that we're looking at. We think we'll come in much cheaper to get the very first watts on the ground. And there are others that are out there that are saying that they can do uh, competitive numbers today, you know, with the design approaches they're taking. So we think the, the numbers that were brought in there were extremely conservative. They represent something which is you do everything with what you have right now. And yes, you can get there, but the costs don't come out competitive. So that's the first piece. 
Uh, the second piece is it had some recommendations on how NASA could help bootstrap this uh, activity as an engineering and a commercial enterprise. The one was that they could continue to support developing support technologies. I mean, you're going to need lift. You're going to need in-space assembly. You're going to need um, materials and a host of other things that would support getting this to work. So NASA can just continue to run the programs they're doing now, but overlap about 80% with what's needed to make happen here. They also said that they could do specific budget items that would support space-based solar. And, you know, we wholly support those recommendations. We think those are things that will be very important on pushing investors to go, yeah, this is something real. Yes, there is um, validation from these agencies that this is something that is worthwhile. It's coming. It can be done. And very importantly, by having these kind of investments that are available to uh, commercial startups, it provides that non-dilutive capital that helps get a deep tech organization up and running much easier and faster. So we, we see it as this validates it can be done. No serious technical objections were brought up. And if things are done right, the prices become incredibly competitive with power on the ground. Now, I do want to put one counter up there, which is they focus very heavily on the uh, levelized cost of energy. And um, I, I think there's a lot more that needs to be considered there, but I'm going to leave that bug in your ear and I'll, I'll pass the mic back. Awesome. And what about for you, Peter? What's your initial take? So, Laura, my initial take is this reminds me so much of the Secretary of the Air Force's inflated cost estimate uh, for the Space Force in order to scare uh, the White House and Congress in order, so that they wouldn't have to do what they didn't want to do. And although you certainly can find uh, things in this that are, in fact, very favorable to the technology path, they just somehow couldn't, couldn't hide it. Uh, you know, they appear to have taken a year to bury it under the weakest possible language uh, as possible. So it seems to me to like bend over backwards to, to miss the point and say, you know, don't look here. Now, if you remember what happened with the malicious compliance leaked uh, report, it backfired in that it created uh, intense interest that actually pushed the, uh, the White House and the Congress even further to create a space force. And given the extreme violent reaction I'm seeing from other people across the community to this report and the very unkind language being used to it, it wouldn't surprise me if it ends up doing exactly the opposite of what it appears to, to intend. But, you know, here's the thing that, and it's very clear from the language, you know, it, it's a, that there is no ambition in this report, right? This report was not even meant to address national policy or speak to the White House or the White House priorities, right? This is not a report to the vice president or the National Space Council. You know, it is a report to NASA leadership, you know, where they are very clear that NASA could maintain its focus on core agency missions while documenting their relevance to SSP uh, or that NASA may want to focus only on its current and planned mission needs. But despite that, you know, buried on page 10 is this bottom line that basically says that there is an absolutely believable, like no magic here at all, a believable path to a clean energy solution at three cents a kilowatt hour and a lower greenhouse gas than nuclear or wind if you if like SpaceX only achieves a fifth its starship uh, its target for starship if you just use electric propulsion, which I think is already, uh, in the part of the uh, SPS Alpha plans, 
and if you uh, lengthen the lifespan to just what you know we're already seeing for current geo objects of of 15 years, not even I mean that's an extreme minimum. So you know it just seems to me extremely disconnected from national strategy. Also unbelievably disconnected from Artemis. When you look at what ESA has put out in the same time frame, very ambitious architectural study about, uh, uh, you know, in-space resource utilization uh, for this. Um, it seems disconnected from the ISAM strategy, and it just sees no real leadership role for NASA at all. So I, I found that to be extremely disappointing that rather than saying like, here are the target things that could be addressed and here's what we should be addressed. In fact, they chose not to make a recommendation at all. And in fact, not only, even though they had a very conceivable pathway to make it very cost competitive, they chose to highlight their baseline with this order of magnitude more cost than the ESA studies two, of the same two system. Two orders of magnitude. Two orders of magnitude. Two orders of magnitude, right? Well, and then they chose to situate it in 2050, right? As opposed to like ESA that wants to be doing 10% of European energy in like 2040, right? So they've already in their writing taken themselves out of the administration's goal. So like this, this was, I mean, to me, it's just like you have tried really, really hard you know, to put yourself completely off the radar of the White House with a scary number and a scary uh, year. John? Yeah, so so on the one hand, it is a very interesting uh, report from the standpoint of the, the efforts that were taken to make space solar power, particularly with the modular approach, which came out of the... the, the SPS Alpha approach, which came out of a NASA-funded study, uh, to take that and make it look as bad as possible. So I, I, I want to highlight just a couple of things. One, which and, and a couple of these Peter referred to. So in the baseline numbers that are presented, the cost, and they only focus on one solar power satellite. So you would only build one Hoover Dam. You'd never build another dam anywhere. So there's only one. And... Uh, in the uh, fixed cost, the upfront cost, which I want to just read to you from the report, the upfront uh, cost is uh, specified at something like $300 billion for their system. And that's to build it three times. Yeah, I mean, that's, basically that's, that's, that's like a seven-star, you know, Mediterranean yeah, but, yacht but, level sort and, of thing, but they, right? But at that, at that price, over half of the cost is for something that was not in the SPS Alpha study, which is a, a maintenance requirement, which is 150 or 160 billion out of that total. But the assumed lifetime of the platform is only 10 years. The, the actual SPS Alpha and their numbers are, are too high, but they're not hot, too high by that much. They're, it's like they've got like $10 billion to build the, the SPS Alpha platform. That's not an entirely unreasonable number. But then they assume in 2050 that the cost of launch will be the same as today, so about $1,500 a kilogram. And their stretch goal for a starship is to get so by 35 years from today's 2024, 
So by a little less than 30 years from now, 26 years from now, to get the cost of launch down to $500 a kilogram, which is still five times more than what Elon is saying he's going to be able to do by 2030. So the, their, their baseline is, is uh, 15 times more cost for launch. They, they've made some other weird assumptions like we want to use a starship to go to geo, not just to low Earth orbit. And for the, the people who are, you know, they love starship. And they propose each time you launch a payload to geo, you, you reuse the booster stage and you throw away the starship that goes to geo. You don't reuse it. Another one I love, um, not only do they want to spend 150 or $160 billion on maintenance for a system that's only going to live for 10 years, uh, but in addition, they want to charge extra tens of billions for disposing of the satellite as though anybody in their right mind would ever launch thousands of tons of aluminum, of silicon, of steel, of copper, of gold, of gallium arsenide, and so on and so on into space, in geo or beyond, in assist lunar space, and then throw it away. You're never going to throw away a solar power satellite. You're always going to recycle it and reuse it for lunar bases and for asteroid mines and Mars cities and your, or other solar power satellites. So, so, they, so the, the, there's just this whole, and these things, by the way, I have to say, these assumptions drive the numbers. They lead to these outrageously high numbers, and and whereas you know the the sort of the 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 core of it is still the modular reflector heliostat based SPS alpha or the sandwich module based concept that was looked at by the Japanese. There are no new references from uh, after about two thousand and six, with the exception of one of my papers from twenty twenty one. There have been literally hundreds of studies and reports worked by people like Ed and and uh, and uh, Vertisolis and and by the Japanese and by the Europeans and so all of these things are somehow just set aside except in a couple of footnotes and everything goes back to references things I did in the 90s and 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 I have to say I know a lot more about space solar power today than I did in the 90s. Um, and that's that's enough rant for the moment. But I and I have one more line. If I can get in one more line right quick, I, I just want to share one quotation. I know I'm sorry. I want to share one quotation from the report because it so epitomizes the feelings. They're talking about mass production, like as done in Starlink. And and they basically in the report they set it aside saying, Yeah, maybe the costs will be lowered with producing space hardware in factories like with Starlink. But we don't have any evidence that that would be true. And we cannot assume this will be the case until it happens. Which is a and perfect this, segue into Ed, by I, the way, because this I, is that is squarely, <laughs> squarely in Ed's wheelhouse. So back to you, Ed. Um, you know, let's dig a little deeper here. What okay. does the report get wrong? I mean, that is obviously a, a, a start. There's going to be, you know, manufacturing at scale here on Earth, but there's also manufacturing at scale in space. Yeah, so there's a couple of them. I mean, I'd like to back up on and, and just start with, I think uh, uh, they don't fully capture the value that firm, clean, renewable energy has 
bringing it down to the ground. So one of the things that's happening right now is even though solar gets cheaper, wind gets cheaper year by year, the cost of making firm power keeps going up. And with that, that means we have to put batteries into the system. We have to put trillions into transmission systems to try to move the power from where it's produced, when it's produced, to the customers that need to use it. And the value proposition for space-based solar is, quite frankly, it can produce the power when it's needed, and it can put it down close to the customers without needing continental-scale transmission lines. In fact, the resource usage to move power on the ground about 200 kilometers is the same amount of resources you need to build the solar power satellites in terms of uh, conductors and all, and to move the power from one end of a continent to another. You know, th this is fundamentally a different capability that offers unique things in balancing the grid, making the grid more resilient, and making the grid available when people need it. And that's completely buried in the use of LCOE, the levelized cost of energy, rather than looking at the, the full value it has, like in spot price marketing and things like that. So just with that out of the way, I think that's something that's missed in the report, and it's simplified through LCOE. Now, the other issues that are there, uh, John did a great job, I think, of digging into the things that are there. When I read through the report, things that really stuck out is they assume 10-year life for the arrays. Uh, for the satellites, and the fact the satellites would have to be refurbished every 10 years. And the cost of refurbishment dwarfed the cost of the initial deployment of the satellite. So the numbers are like on the order of, you know, they're, they're like 10 to 15 billion to build first of a kind, which these are still hard, higher numbers than others are predicting right now. Then they have on the order of like 100 billion to get the first system up. But then since you have to refurbish it twice in the 30 years that you're building this for, you're basically launching the satellite three times into orbit. And that doesn't line up with the experience that most of the satellites are having today. We have 35-year-old satellites right now in orbit in GEO that have been able to operate, do their mission, and are still up there. So why 10 years was chosen as a lifespan for this is a little bit tough, unless it has something to do with looking back at the old 1980 um, documents where the 1980 systems required refurbishment, like literally daily, and it's completely irrelevant to doing solid state, high reliability electronics that we know how to build today in 2020, 40 years later. Um, the other pieces that stuck out is there's no appreciation for what rights law and some of these other economic things that we've learned have to do with getting prices down. I, I think SpaceX has done a fantastic job of driving the cost down, but quite uh, frankly, you can plot out their prices that they have been able to put into place and it follows these industrial rules that have been known forever. And it's quite simply, if you can get your volumes up, each time you double your volume, you're going to get some rate that you're able to decrease cost. And the fundamental cost of building these things is raw materials like copper, silicon, glass, aluminum. These are fundamentally cheap materials. So the design and the fabrication should drop down to very low prices and it's what high volume manufacturing gets us. And so we don't think that really was taken care of in that report very well. And the final piece is, and they have it in, in writing, they said, hey, we only looked at two architectures, and they literally say there may be other architectures out there that can drive the price down wildly compared to what we looked at. And, and that's the opportunity that's out there to really push this down in a much shorter time frame. But Ed, I also want you to bring something else to the table because your company is, you know, in the trenches of this, Right. You guys yep. are testing, you guys have designs, you guys are thinking about launch, you very specifically are thinking about manufacturing. So let's say just today, 
you know, somebody walked through the door and, 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 you know, was, you know, had the kind of money that Elon Musk from SpaceX has and says, right. Okay. Ed, what do you need? How much money do you need to get this thing? When can you get it up there? What will it produce? What would those numbers be? Um, from an investment stamp, okay, let me let me talk a little bit about how this works, is you need money up front to do the engineering and the design. At a certain point, you're able to go to debt markets, you're able to ask for financing, and these are places where the government can come in and they can help secure loans and things like that. And then finally, you get into something which is secured by the project you do. You know, our numbers are on the order of hundreds of millions. So that gets you all the way to the point that you can then access the capital that you need to get something into orbit. A uh, billion and a half to between a billion and a billion and a half is what we think can be done. And, and John, you wanted to add an injection there real quick. Go I, ahead. I just want to say, uh, yeah, I, I want to concur fully on, on on the general order of magnitude of Ed's numbers. So tens of millions for initial tech, a couple of hundred plus for initial space demo, a small number of billions for initial system. Ed's, Ed's numbers and my numbers track perfectly well. Yep. And, and we look at this, I look at this in terms of, I mean, you can build a car completely from scratch for between one to six billion dollars. And that's something you're going to produce hundreds of thousands a year of. That covers tooling, that covers engineering, and that makes something that's put in consumers' hands that can last forever. The complexity you need for these highly modular designs is more on the order of something like your dashboard. You know, so when we look at this and you look at what it takes, where do you look for other high volume things that are going on? Now, there's unique things in space. But space just simply has unique challenges. It doesn't have fundamentally untenable challenges. Radiation's different, but we build electronics that sit next to engines. We build electronics, get soaked in all kinds of fluids, get covered in mud. These are all solvable problems, and they become high-volume problems. They become cheaper problems. And that's the, the fundamental piece we see that can be done that can drive these costs down very quickly. And the other one that's buried in this is these systems are very redundant. I've got potentially, say, a million modular elements that all have to work together. And if I lose one, it has an imperceptible impact on the performance. If I lose a thousand, it has an imperceptible. A million units, I can lose probably 10,000 before you'd even be able to start seeing in the noise a little indicator your system doesn't behave. So inherently, these highly modular designs can be incredibly robust to manufacturing issues, robust to debris, robust to failures in orbit. And when you're doing high volume manufacturing, you're able to sit and learn from that as it goes on and correct it. And as these systems scale out, they just simply get better with time. So it, it, it's some fundamental pieces that are buried there that make this a unique engineering thing that we can robustly build. We can robustly have issues in space. And it's not like there's any one single point of failure that will cause this thing to go down. So it, it, it's from a, a deployment standpoint, it's wonderful to work with. So then... Again, let's say I have just a ton of money and, you know, I'm going to say, right, what do you need? How many people do you need? When do you need it? My question then is going to be to you, how soon can I actually have this thing up and operational? Seriously. No, because I mean, seriously. They're, they're using the number 2050 and that just seems beyond comprehension from everything that I've seen coming out of China, everything I've seen coming out of Japan, and everything I've seen coming out of ESA, which I promise you, 20 plus countries agreeing to do something, their yeah. number, their year is even be well before 2050 by like almost two decades. Like seriously? So when could we do this? Well, the hardest part is scaling up the supply chain. 
I mean, there's only so many square, so many kilowatts of power that are produced each year by the by space rated uh, solar panel makers. There's only so many square meters of circuit board and other things that are appropriate for this that are in production. And there's only so many tons of lift capacity available now. However, there's like 53 launch companies, I think, right now that are trying to find a niche to serve. So launch capacity is going to be there if they're convinced and they can convince investors it's going to happen. Space-based uh, photovoltaics, uh, that can be scaled up in about three years. Launch can be scaled up in about three years. And all of these just come down to once that commitment's put up front and these other supply chain issues can be spun up, you're looking at about three years. There's about a three-year lead on all of this to get down to the getting the first systems that parts in place. And then the assembly times are very, very fast. I mean, it's about 18 months of permitting to actually put something on the ground. We actually have a partner right now that we're working with that we know where we're going to site our first receiver. Um, it's about a two-year lead, three-year lead to get something just for a Leo demo. And if you've got the money and you put the deposits down, you can probably you can get the capacity lined up right now to get something into orbit. John, you want to Could, add a point? If you if you take as a fact that space-based solar-powered microwave frequency RF systems are all pretty darn similar components. I'm going to use as an, an, an analog, an analogy, Starlink. And in that case, SpaceX, they flew their first reusable Falcon 9 reusable launcher in 2015. Small number of years later, they made a decision that, that they were going to get into the um, direct market business, direct communications market business, they converted one of their factories to make Starlinks. 12 or 18 months later, they started cranking 30 metric tons a month of Starlink satellite off of production line and launching them on Falcon 9 reusables. There are now 4,500, 4, about 4,500 satellites. They've gone to the second or third generation, but approximately with 4,500 satellites, something like 10 megawatts of space solar power in space, driving an RF system, uh, RF powered system that is about four to five times bigger than the International Space Station. And they've done it in four years. Now, let's suppose that this modular approach to space solar power is right, that putting these things together is not harder than warehouse robotics, and that somebody else does it first. And and if you could go in, say, four or five years, not 25 years, not, not decades, but years from I'm going to really do this and investing a few hundred million dollars, practically nothing in terms of, of global security interests or global industry, for that matter. And those whoever that is, whoever that player is, by 2030 has the launcher, has the system and starts deploying every year megawatts of space solar power growing to thousands of megawatts of space solar power what does that mean both industrially in space and cislunar space and in terms of national security and that's my tee up for peter peter how about it in, ter in terms of technological surprise well i couldn't agree more i mean i i think we're going to see several uh, surprises Sputnik-like surprises related to uh, space solar power with the deployment of the PRC systems. And I think the way to think about this is very similar to how far behind we were in 5G 
and how, you know, the Chinese have really gone after infrastructure, you know, as their approach to competitive strategy. And if you think about, you know, the scaling factor, you know, that Ed talked about, about being able to basically, you know, really move in about three years towards scale and the potential to scale and the, and the true potential to reduce costs. And then you think about the first mover advantages that you get, particularly if you lock in initial markets and others are paying to further reduce, you know, your, uh, you know, your fixed costs, um, the ability to rapidly get behind uh, in this is, is tremendous. And, you know, it goes to even really small things like, you know, once a, a, another country, you know, has the dominant share of space photovoltaics, you know, which, you know, we have a tenuous hold on now, even though we've lost all other forms of photovoltaics, we have a tenuous lead in the United States on uh, advanced space rated solar cells. Same thing for electric propulsion. Probably a lot of things, you know, that go into to the the uh, computer robotic operating system. You know, so losing out on space solar power is not just losing out on space solar power. It is very likely losing out on a huge part of your industrial base. And if space solar power is economically successful, the scale of launch and the launch facilities to launch it so far dwarf the entire rest of the launch market that you're very likely to to lose your entire launch business too. So, you know, the United States could rapidly go from being, you know, the number one, you know, country that has the most commercial space launch to, you know, being forced back into the, the position, you know, of Russia or India, where you basically are subsidizing your national uh, space launch because you, you know, you, Nobody else really wants to buy it unless you're going to subsidize it to provide friend prices. So, you know, the consequences of something that can scale like space solar power are dire. And the inability of the report authors to see this and to desire, you know, I mean, it's kind of crazy to me that NASA would write a port, report that in every way says, please don't give me any money for this. Please don't give me a funding line for this. Please don't ask me to do any more on, on ISAM. I don't even want to mention the fact that there's an ISRU tie-in. You know, just please make this all go away. You know, shows how a-strategic the Office of Technology and Science Policy and NASA leadership actually is and how tremendously disconnected they are from what is actually being asked of them by at least two administrations um, with tremendous continuity of administrations on what they're wanting the, the role of NASA to be in helping to bring about a thriving space economy. Another large part of this report is devoted to the effects of greenhouse emissions, right? And that's a big deal for the Biden administration. And by the way, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Peter, but if you have such a report coming out, I mean, wouldn't the White House's OSTP as an Office of Science and Technology sign off on it? I mean, they wouldn't be unaware, would they? You know, Laura, I I, I don't know. I mean, my, uh, you know, the rumors I heard was that there were at, at least two very different uh, takes on this in the White House. And I honestly don't think it's ever been elevated uh, to the National I, Space I, Council I, to even consider, which is bizarre 
because, you know, this is like the number one policy priority of the Biden administration. You would think that, particularly with the partnership opportunities, you know, that the NASA administrator would be jumping up and down to tell the National Space Council about it. But the report itself only talks about the potential of supporting partners, not leading in 21st century jobs, not leaning in, you know, big projects for uh, greenhouse, you know, gas emissions. It's incredible. In fact, the challenges and opportunities section of the report only has challenges. There are no opportunities in it. So it it's, you know, I'll let John, John, if you have I, I any think, insight into I, that. I, I, just want to, I just want to add one other comment. I, I don't know whether or not it ever went to the White House. My own feeling is that informally it probably did. But that's a feeling. That's not, a, that's not an assertion of any kind. But I'm going to say that it was definitely developed with an eye towards the uh, priorities of the Biden administration. It's like every other chart, every other page is somehow focused on assuring the outside community, especially the Biden White House, this is nothing going on that's useful for climate change. Don't look at this. Space solar power is so terrible and is going to produce so much more greenhouse gas than even coal that it's impossible to look at this as a possible part of our climate portfolio. It's... It is it is so staggeringly clear that that's a message. And I, I don't know whether anybody at the White House saw it, but but it was definitely. Oh, come on. You know, they saw it. Oh, no, oh you know, they saw it because this them. this stuff, this stuff goes through through through, you know, the National Security Council. I mean, I'm sorry, but, you know, at least three of us here have worked for the U.S. government in various <laughs> forms. And. Come on, we all know that this stuff gets coordinated because if it well, doesn't get coordinated, your ass is in, you know, somebody's crosshairs, right? Well, I want to add so, one more Ed, Go for it. Okay. Just one thing that was kind of disappointing in looking at how they did the CO2 analysis. I mean, they, they, they did embedded energy. It looked like the embedded energy took like the energy mix we have today. They looked at only methane rockets. They didn't look at hydrogen rockets. I mean, if that was really a priority, there are very small tweaks that could be done in the study they did that could have driven the CO2 numbers almost down to the ground. And something that was actually, I thought, missing, which would have been a very important one to put in front of decision makers, is the energy return on investment. I mean, just back of the envelope numbers show that put building space-based solar, it's the energy equivalent of mining uranium out of the ground. I mean, literally, the energy in a space-based solar thing that we build is identical to digging up uranium out of the ground, unprocessed. And the second one is that, you going to say something, John? Uh, I was going to say, but all of the additional numbers, hundreds of billions of dollars worth of equipment for maintenance and servicing and disposal and debris management, that's how the numbers for the carbon emissions were driven up. It didn't have anything to do with the actual solar power satellite. It had to do with all the fixed infrastructure that was piled onto this one solar power satellite as and and. And even all of those numbers are, are, are not right. And the but- assumption also seems to mean that all these materials and, and in their basic form would somehow originate from Earth, with the, oh, which completely a, so, ignores that's cause, that's cause what, only- what's, what's going on in the ISAM, OSAM community right so, now. Yeah. So Ed, I, I do want to address that. Point. Let me give it back to Ed in just a second, though, because 
I mean, to me, this was absolutely stunning. So you have a national cislunar policy that outright says that we want to do massive manufacturing on the moon and want to lead it in public-private partnerships, right? You've got an ISAM strategy and implementation strategy that want to do this at scale. You've got national policy that wants to use ISRU, and you have national direction to go to the South Pole to develop the, the precursors for an industrial civilization. And somehow this report completely fails to tie it to NASA moon to Mars objectives, to mm-hmm. ISRU objectives. It, it's just stunning that they could leave out, which is even more stunning because in the 70s, NASA did an amazing study on using lunar resources to build solar power satellites. And there have been significant research, including in collaboration with John, since. And it was mentioned in you know, both the NSSO report in 2008 and the IAC, IAA uh, international assessment. So it's not like this idea isn't out there. And then during the long, long period of rewrite, nearly a year to change GLADS to MADS, ESA put out a phenomenal architecture study on the use of lunar resources to build uh, solar power satellites at scale on, I think, a sooner timeline than this. And somehow this report doesn't even mention any of that or assess any of that, which I think is just a tremendous foul on NASA. Ed, you are you've been working with 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 ESA folks and also with the UK. Yeah, and both of them have come in and said that they can that space-based solar makes sense. The ESA is in the process right now of trying to get a funded program coming into the uh, late 20s that would get demonstrators and things like that in place. The Space Energy Initiative in the UK has got funding and has been pushing forward to get this with phenomenal demonstrations going on throughout the university system there. So there is wireless power transfer demos. The University of Bristol, we're actually in a joint project with them on uh, doing simulation of beams from orbit through the atmosphere so that uh, industry, academics, and government officials can do this modeling and simulation and see how this stuff is really going to behave on a national or a continental basis. You know, so they, they have put money where their mouth is to advance the art on this, you know. And they're uh, not the only ones. I mean, Saudi no. Arabia also is part of this thing with the UK. They have an agreement to actually, you know, use space-based solar power, if I'm not mistaken, to power a city in the middle of the desert that hasn't even been built yet. But they, they've signed the contract. Right? Laura, you know, I mean, this, this was even something that was, you know, discussed at the latest COP. You know, it's been discussed, you know, at multiple high-level forums. So I'll tell you, this NASA report will not be making any friends with ESA, JAXA, Space Force, AFRL, or U.S. companies. I mean, really, the the signal that said is U.S. companies go overseas. Don't expect any help from NASA. Absolutely. All right. So... I've got to ask this. Maybe, maybe I'm naive to ask this next question, but you know, we have been venting our spleens for quite a bit because there's just so much to gripe about. But 
you know, is there anything in there that is positive that can be built upon and leveraged to, you know, get the technology that, that you, Peter, have repeatedly said is of civilizational importance? Peter, is there I, anything I, in actually, there? Actually, I think, yes, I, I think so, actually. So first of all, there's there are a few things that they do in their methodology where they, you know, put it into phases um, where they put it into, to, you know, areas that I think, uh, and it's one of the lines in the report, buried in the report, uh, you know, I think actually in the appendices, um, is that, you know, these challenges could serve as prizes that NASA could provide. So, you know, that is excellent. I think just laying these mostly terrible assumptions on the table invites a hornet's nest of others to come after and red team this and provide way, way better answers. Um, I do think that at least the, the starting place that it gives to do a life cycle carbon analysis will be useful in, in serious people interested in promoting SSP in creating the models for NREL and DOE to actually be part of the climate models that are used uh, by the White House and by the United Nations. Um, so I, I think, you know, those are useful. And I think, frankly, without meaning to, you know, they have really sort of uh, hinted at where a bunch of opportunities are, right? So also buried in there are like, hey, you know, if tugs were this cheap and some of these companies are, you know, suggesting this, and and the fact that they have highlighted these two really sort of three major concepts for deployment, I, those don't exhaust the deployment ideas. And so I think, you know, there are very clever people who have already thought through how SpaceX could uh, reduce the number of starships to put thousands of metric tons on the moon or to get thousands of metric tons to Mars through aggregation and, you know, going to higher elliptical orbits. I think there are Lots of things. So it wouldn't surprise me if, you know, the the anger and spire over spite over this report derives a diversity of smarter concepts. So then, you know, like, where do we go from here? And they this may be different for all of you, right? Because again, you all have uniquely different and mutually supporting perspectives. And Ed, why don't you start that off? Where do we go? Well, where we are right now, I, I think is very important. That NASA report, even though there's some weaknesses we've identified, it did a couple of things. One is it said there's a path to making this the cheapest, cleanest energy. Number two, four years ago when we talked about it, people were like, the physics don't even work. What are you talking about? And this report didn't have any physics objections or any engineering objections, merely economics. And economics is a sphere where commercial companies can come in and drive the prices down. The, the other ones are, where do we go from here? It'd be great to see the federal government open up funding for advanced research on energy, uh, other advanced topics inside of NASA to fund some of the fundamental pieces that are needed for this. And that helps get the investor community to come along, and that helps the commercial companies that are going after it to make things happen that much faster. And Peter, what about from your perspective? Where do we go from here? Well, I think we're just ramping up. I mean, uh, in the last month, a couple months, we've seen Congress actually put something, you know, in a bill. We've seen the Space Frontier Foundation start a dedicated project and put manpower against it. Um, 
you know, I, I think this report's going to drive an enormous amount of visibility. And I think in many ways, the fact that its methodology is so questionable is it may likely gain us advocates that otherwise, you know, might have uh, looked askance at a, at a more positive report. And the last thing I would say is, you know, I'm hoping that the press that this gets, including from this podcast, will force this onto the agenda of the National Space Council. And John, so, you are our space-based uh, solar power sensei. Where so, do we go from I, here? I have done any number of system studies on any number of system concepts. And methodologically, I don't really find any criticism here that I would say this is, a, this is flawed. I think the methodology and how it was done, I've, I certainly have no objection to them looking at the, these two particular system concepts, one of which is mine, but it's just like making cookies and you know you're supposed to have a, a pinch of salt and instead throwing in three cups of salt. So it's not that the salt shouldn't be in there, it's just the balance in the findings, not the analysis and frankly, not the recommendations. I think the recommendations, uh, conclusion and recommended future study, ideas for how NASA might proceed. Uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with any of those. That's uh, pages 31 through 33, if anybody wants to have a look at it. But it's the it's what they then decided to do with it to make sure that the assumptions in this otherwise perfectly great methodology came out looking like hundreds of billions of extra dollars worth of infrastructure that nobody's working on, nobody thinks is necessary, but were somehow just added in there as though they came from the community, which they, they did not. They were just added like three cups of salt in your batch of cookies. John, Peter, Ed, thank you all so much for making the time to come on the Downlink podcast. Thank you, Laura. Laura, it was a pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you very much. Appreciate the opportunity to talk about this. This was great. That's it for this week. If you like what you're hearing, follow The Downlink on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vago Maradian and listen to Cavish Ships to hear the latest on what's happening in the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening. Thank you.